Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. Welcome to this episode of History is Gay. I have a guest host that is uh, joining me today for a fun episode that we've been working on for quite some time, and I'm really excited to bring them on, uh, and I'm also very grateful to them for dealing with lots and lots of fun time zone craziness because my wonderful guest is in the Netherlands. So we've been doing a lot of late night, early morning fun things. So welcome everyone to Hannah Van Rie, who is the host and producer of the Queer Sounds podcast. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Lee. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm all right. As you said, it's, uh, it's, it's always fun working with a nine hour time difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've had to we've had to reschedule our our recording a couple of times because neither of us knows how to math because we are gays. So Absolutely. um time differences like that can be really difficult, especially when one likes to sleep. Shout <laughs> so. out to everyone in Australia because you know, eight hour time oh, difference god. the other way around, you know. Oh god, it's more so. It's uh it's so Awful. The few times that I've, you know, worked with our good friends over at Queer as Fact, shout out to y'all. It's always been really interesting. Those poor folks came on for like a panel that I was doing for work. These poor kids were up at like 5 a.m. to do <laughs> this like live streamed panel. So oh, am, I, am I the first so European on this podcast? You might be. You might be. I have a couple of things kind of in the, you know, in the back burner with some folks in the UK, but I believe that you are the first European on the podcast. So welcome. I feel honored. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I'm really excited to have you here with me to talk about uh, someone that we kind of came up with together. And it's going to be really interesting because this is our first uh, first episode really covering an entire person who is still around, still alive. We are going to be talking about Wendy Carlos. She is an electronic musician and pioneer in synthesizer music. If you have listened to or watched the films A Clockwork Orange, Tron, you are familiar with her music. We got together and we were like, okay, let's do an episode together on like some queer music. And I can't, I can't remember exactly how we came around to this topic, but uh, I just sent you a random <laughs> list of people like, like right. have your pick. There we go. Yes. And it's like, oh yeah, Wendy Carlos, I've seen some cool stuff on her. Um, and it's been really interesting to kind of get to know her story a little bit together. And I really, I'm excited to get to talk with you a little bit about your nerdy backgroundness in music. So to uh, introduce yourself a little bit to folks who are listening, who might not be familiar with you and your work and your podcast, Queer Sounds. All right. Yeah. Um, so my name is Hannah. My pronouns are they, them. Uh, I live in the Netherlands. I did a bachelor in journalism with a minor in music, marketing and management. And uh, yeah, I, I am the host of a little podcast called Queer Sounds, all one word, in which I interview other queer people on their taste in music, right? Because everyone likes music, I presume. And especially uh, uh, when it comes to like queer people, I feel like 
discovering your own taste in music and queer development kind of go hand in hand, like simultaneously, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. like especially around puberty, you, you find a vocabulary in that, that helps you describe your own queerness and, and gender and whatever. Um, so yeah, no, I've, I've got a podcast in which I um, interview queer people about what songs they like. Um, which for now is kind of, uh, it, can, it, can, it, it can be separated into three different categories, like obscure local music, big pop divas and emo. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing. <laughs> those are, those um, are the three genders. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, yeah, we, uh, you reached out to me first and, uh, and I came on your show and then it was like, oh, we should do, we should do an episode together. And then a year later we finally did an episode together <laughs> or however long it's been and um, there is this wonderful saying in dutch which goes which basically means whatever is in a barrel doesn't go bad Ooh, um i like that so yeah you know that 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 applies to different things in different languages as well. i like that so yeah so uh today we're going to talk a little bit about wendy carlos or as i've been taking to calling her inside my brain the trans synth queen of my heart um in terms of content warnings for this episode there's going to be a few as usual we will put time codes in the show notes so that you can choose what parts you uh, would like to opt into or opt out of content warnings for this episode are going to include discussion of suicidal thoughts, period, typical transphobia. We're going to be dealing in the 60s and 70s primarily. Um, and there's also going to be some use of outdated or currently considered defamatory terms. We'll talk about that a little bit. In terms of the format for this episode, it's going to be people-focused, so we're going to be going through a bio for Wendy Carlos and then talking about our uh, why do we think they're gay, and then, as usual, we will end the podcast with our how gay were they segment, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight. So yeah, uh, Hannah, are you ready to get started and move ourselves out of this little intro space into giving a little bit of context before we dive into the life of wendy carlos yeah yeah absolutely um first i want to make a little bit of comment because when you said uh something that you've been calling wendy in your brain uh, i always had to think back of like your alan turing episode because you know we're dealing with tech <laughs> right. pioneers here and for some reason um it it's just been space mom space mom <laughs> I, I, you know, I approve of that. I think that Wendy Carlos can share the title of Space Mom with Carrie Fisher. I think that works. Ooh, yeah, okay. I, I, you know, I think, I think uh, they could be the Space Moms together. There we go. I feel like Wendy Carlos might be the responsible, practical Space Mom, and then Carrie Fisher would be the fun Space Vodka Aunt. <laughs> I was about to say yes, Space Vodka Aunt. <laughs> yes, and Carrie Fisher is absolutely a vodka aunt, one thousand right. percent. Um, starting off with our kind of historical context, Hannah's going to go a little bit into the status and landscape of electronic music at the time that we're starting our story, because they are a wonderful genius when it comes to talking about music in a way that I only am able to comment like, I like that. That sounds nice. All right. So there we go. It's this, this is very cool because um, when you think of synthesizers, you tend to think about like the 1970s, 1980s, like the keyboards with the funky sounds. 
But the first like proto synthesizer dates back as early as the 1890s. Um, there was this one machine called the Telharmonium, which was close to what people in the 1970s could also recognize as a, as a synthesizer, because you know at that point it's just a room-sized behemoth with like a keyboard attached. It was you know difficult to move those things around. And uh, another thing Wendy Carlos liked to use was a vocoder, which was invented in like, I mean to say 1928 by a lovely man called Homer Dudley. And the vocoder, you know, being a portmanteau for voice encoder. So, you know, just a way to make your voice uh, digital and electronic. I sorry, I just did the the like uh the the brain explodey because I never put that together ever. I'm like what is vocoder? Oh. Yeah, no. Um and and you know to be fair, uh to I'm not entirely sure how much of Wendy's work is actually used by a vocoder because you've got these different types of machine, right? You've got a vocoder, you've got a talk box, and all of these different machines that kind of uh, fall into the same category of making a voice sound digital. Anyway, as a result of the vocoder in 1939, the birth year of our lovely protagonist today. Um, during the World Fair in New York, Miss Helen Harper presented Dudley's uh, voice operation demonstrator or voter for friends and acquaintances because uh, having discovered a way to encode and transmit speech electronically, Dudley now found a way for machines to produce speech, creating the first voice synthesizer. So um, with a vocoder, you talk into a machine and then that as a result sounds like digital and machiney. The difference with a voter, so the voice operation demonstrator, is this is just a keyboard, right? It's it's kind of like Siri or whatever machine can talk back to you, except you can kind of play it like a keyboard. Mm. So it's it's instead of I'm not entirely sure if you like type it in, it kind of looked like a regular piano um, with a bunch of computers attached to it. And then if you play the piano in an appropriate way, you can create sentences and, and words that kind of sound like a machine is saying it. Think of your tinny robot sound that that's what a voter does. So before Wendy Carlos' first album, uh, synthesizers instruments were mostly, you know, related to more experimental, less commercially successful music or like in laboratories. An example of that would be, I want to say Kit Bodet or Kit Bodot, something along those lines, the name slipped my mind for a little bit. And, you know, the reason he was able to produce an electronic album in 1958 was because he worked for a large electronics company and just has the means for it, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, one of the main characters in electronic music in the 1950s was Jean-Jacques Perry, a French dude who released an electronic album in uh, 58. Uh, he played a type of proto-synthesizer from the 1940s called an uh, ondioline, you know, on being a, the French word for waves. Um, and that basically was like playing a game of operation. You know, if you hit the metal with the thing, then it makes a noise. However, this was just way more sensitive. So it got closer to the metal, it would already make a noise. And if you got closer, further away from it at different parts, you would just get different sounds. And with that specific machine, uh, you had a keyboard that would only make one sound at a time, so no chords. However, that keyboard was mounted on springs, meaning the keys could be physically wobbled to create a vibrato effect while playing. Oh. And if you have that and add a bunch of filters for a wide array of different sounds, then you can kind of get creative with it. Um, a person that we uh, will 
encounter later this episode, is Usachevsky, a fairly early adapter of the tape recorder as a musical tool. So, you know, actually, like apart from the machinery, now we're moving on to the way music was recorded. He produced a bunch of tape works throughout the 1950s. He performed at the MoMA together with his friend and colleague Looning in a 52, showing off what he could do with tape. So yeah, that's uh, a whole <laughs> lot of information, a whole lot of, you know, technicalities. Uh, it's it's a bit of a mess. It's been a wild ride since 1890 <laughs> yeah. uh, and that, that, that room-sized machine. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's where it's it's our starting point. Mm -hmm. So you know, we've got some synthesizers that's been around for a while. We've got the different machinery that's already available to make your voice sound wacky, and you know the way music is being recorded. And from here, all of the information that I've been sharing right now, you can guess that we're in kind of a musical and technological whirlwind of like new possibilities. Right. And at this point, like nobody was really using synthesizers commercially. It was like, ah, yes, the the folks in their laboratories making, you know, beep boop robot sounds and sound effects and things like that, which is where we're going to be coming in. That's also because, you know, those those machines were still like room sized. You needed to have access to a bunch of different computers and, a, and like a, a apartment size where you could fit those machines. Right. So, yeah, it's it, they weren't accessible. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, before we go into our bio, one thing we really wanted to mention is an important note about sources. As I mentioned, this is our first time talking about someone who is still around, other than the one time that I think me and Aubrey Kelvin talked about Rodney Powell in our Queers in the Civil Rights Movement episode. Uh, so... All of the information that you are going to be hearing today, most of it is going to come directly from Wendy's website, wendycarlos.com, so that we can paint as accurate and authentic a picture of her own experiences and feelings directly from her own words. Uh, if something doesn't come directly from Wendy's site, it comes from an article or interview that she's listed and linked to on her site or is one that she actually actively participated in. We do want to acknowledge that there is apparently a biography that was published in 2020 that Carlos herself disavows, saying that, quote, no one ever interviewed me nor anyone I know. There's simply no way to know what's true or not. Nothing is firsthand. So if you go out and you want to learn a little bit more about Wendy after this episode, just please be aware that there is, uh, I think, the only book out there published on her, but that she has mentioned on her website that uh, she does not approve of this tome. So take with that what you will. Uh, so yeah, let's dive in. Let's start at the beginning, as one usually does. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the life of Wendy Carlos, starting with her early days and childhood. So she was born on November 14th, 1939, which makes her a Scorpio, as Hannah put in our outline, like a good queer should. And she was born in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, as the eldest of two. She has a brother who was born two years after her. Her parents were both working class, and she came from a family that were already musically talented. Her mother played the piano, and two of her uncles played trombone and trumpet and drums, respectively. Her mother started her in piano lessons at the age of six, so really early on, and she wrote her first composition at ten, which was titled A Trio for Clarinet, Accordion, and Piano. So already really getting into kind of the classical oeuvre. As a child, she said she, quote, preferred art and music to rough and tumble play, and that she wasn't good at sports. 
Early on, she showed talents in graphic arts and the sciences, and you can even see some of her art on her website these days. And she won a Westinghouse Science Fair scholarship in high school for building her own computer at the age of 14. And think about this is in <laughs> this is in the 40s. Uh, well, actually, by this point, it was uh, it was early early fifties. Building your own computer in nineteen fifty three. Yeah, yeah. Building your own computer in nineteen fifty three is uh, pretty <laughs> insanely wild. So just think about that. Is you know there was no like PC part picker. Um, you know, as someone who's built my own computer, very different landscape to be able to do. that. Turing would be proud. Yeah. Right. Uh, see, now I want to see a conversation be- between the- these two. That'd be great. Oh my god. But wait, um I, I might I might get my, my, my ears crossed, but fifty-three, fifty-four was Turing around for that? So this this could have been a thing that happened, right? Technically like they could have met. <laughs> yeah. Turing opening a newspaper, seeing how this fourteen year old wonder child built their own computer. Oh yes. That'd be excellent. <laughs> All right, moving on to the college years. She moved to Providence, Rhode Island to attend Brown University in fifty-eight pursuing a double major in music and physics. Uh, while at Brown, she discovered and became infatuated with electronic music and taught informal lessons to other students. She said in a People magazine interview in the 1980s, I didn't decide, it chased me. I loved all the musical, mechanical, and traumatic things about the field, which sounds like a whole lot of mood. Yeah. <laughs> um, after graduating from Brown in 62, Carlos moved to New York and pursued an MA in music composition at Columbia University. There, she studied with the person we mentioned before, Vladimir Usachevsky, and his friend Otto Luning at the Columbia Princeton Music Center, the first ever electronic music center in the United States. Um, while at Columbia, she met Robert Moog, an electronic music engineer who was working on the first commercial synthesizer. The Moog synthesizer debuted in 1964 at the Audio Engineering Society show where she would strike up a friendship and partnership that would spend many, many years um, with her as one of his first clients. Wendy gave Mook essential advice and technical assistance on developing the synthesizer. Uh, an article that featured her uh, wrote, to work a synthesizer most efficiently, one had to be a conductor, performer, composer, acoustician, and instrument builder. Um, and Carlos was all of those. Designer Moog, who manufactured the synthesizers, gives Carlos all the credit. Wendy used techniques that had been available for years, but she just used them better. Then Wendy, in turn, wrote about Moog uh, after Robert Moog's death uh, in 2005. It was a perfect fit. He was a creative engineer who spoke music, and I was a musician who spoke science. It felt like a meeting of sympathetic minds, like he were my older brother, perhaps. Yeah, so it was kind of a match made in heaven from the start. And I really like that, you know, even though Moog was the first person to, you know, he was creating these machines, he basically gives... Wendy all of the credit for being like, well, I mean, I made it, but she she's the one who made it into a success. Yeah. So going on from Columbia, she graduated from Columbia from grad school in 1965 and assisted Leonard Bernstein in a presentation of electronic music at the Philharmonic Hall. So Leonard Bernstein is a, a very famous Broadway composer. And after graduation, she got a position as a recording and mastering engineer at Gotham Recording Studios in New York 
York City, as prompted by Ustachevsky. Uh, we have a quote from her that says, I began to know and love New York City. My growing interest in electronic music took a real leap that period. I'd been experimenting with taped music, multiple tracks, that sort of thing, and Professor Ustachevsky made the suggestion that I get a job in a recording studio. I was already beginning to compose, but it was he who suggested I'd support myself by working on the technical engineering side of music. By 1966, Carlos had been working with her own small analog modular Moog synthesizer, which was actually custom built for her by Robert Moog. Uh, she basically was like, I want these things on it. And so Bob introduced key sensitivity, components that would trigger chords, and other improvements that Carlos suggested and kind of gave him advice on. And at this time, she was primarily working on recording sound effects and jingles for TV commercials until she met her friend and producer, uh, uh, Rachel Elkind, or Elkind, who will be a, a large part in, in her life in 1967, who convinced her to work on more personal artistic endeavors. And this is where she starts kind of going back into making her own compositions and doing things for her own self-edification rather than working on kind of sound effects and corporate things. Which brings us to the uh, musical career of it all. Um, you know, she met Rachel, the producer, she met Moog, the entire thing was coming together. So while Carlos recorded several compositions during her time at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center, her true music career began in 68 with the release of her album called Switched on Bach, a collection of Johann Sebastian Bach compositions played on synthesizer, well known as the most influential synthesizer record of all time. Um, according to keyboard magazine editor Dominic Milano, because this was the first time a album was composed purely through a synthesizer mm -hmm. or well, not composed, but recorded right. through a synthesizer because, you know, Bach didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Produced by uh, Rachel Elkind after Carlos had asked her to listen to some recordings she had made with musicologist Benjamin Folkman uh, years before at the EMC. So this was just technically like a casual Elkind saying to Carlos, hey, this sounds neat. You should probably do something with that. Probably make a whole um, album. Exactly. Yeah. The Switched on Bach album became a huge success that they didn't really expect. And it basically launched the synthesizer into mainstream attention. Because of this album, we have things like disco, like Daft Punk, uh, contemporary electronic music as we know it. This was the thing that made people sit up and go, oh, you can use a synthesizer to do stuff like this. I'm going to buy an album that is classical music on this machine. Uh, this really, you know, moved it out of the, the laboratory space, essentially. And yeah, so um, over one million copies were sold, as was the first classical album to go to uh, platinum in the US, number one classical charts, for, uh, for three years and peaked at the number 10 on the US Billboard 200. The album won three Grammy Awards in 1969, which is insane. Other Grammy winners that year, Joni Mitchell, Quincy Jones, Aretha Franklin, The Beatles, Abbey Road, which, you know, technically won in the Best Engineered Album Non-Classical, which is, you know, the Switched on Bach won the classical counterpart of. Um, fun little thing, the Beatles, Abbey Road, they had, the Beatles themselves had huge fights while recording Abbey Road, which is famously known, but part of those fights was because, uh, Paul McCartney just kept on playing with a Moog synthesizer. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, especially, uh, during the song Maxwell Silverhammer. 
That like, makes sense. Paul just kept on playing the synthesizer, having fun with it, and everyone else was like, "Jesus Christ, take it down a notch and just do what you're told." And <laughs> Which I mean, I guess it makes a lot of sense that these are, you know, these are debuting and and getting recognized in the same year. That's. I wonder if Paul McCartney listened to Switched on Bach. Probably that, that makes that would make sense. <laughs> yeah, and from there it's just oh, fancy shiny new toy. Let's let's annoy everyone right, the fuck right. with it. Right, yeah, and I mean, wait, can I say, can I say that here? Oh yeah, you could you could say whatever you want. This is this is a this is a All swearing right. friendly podcast. We discovered this in our first ever episode where we just realized we couldn't stop saying fuck. So, um, I I have that. <laughs> Oh, right, I have that good. lovely little uh little little e on our Apple podcasts whatever it is iTunes. Um yeah, I mean like using the synthesizer each individual element like I I don't think that we've gotten across exactly how difficult it was at this time to make electronic music. Like each element had to be layered and tracked individually in the studio with like one hand like adjusting controls and filter while the other hand is like doing melody on a keyboard the synth had to be like tuned before each take and you just kind of cross your fingers that it stayed in tune by the end of that take it's mesmerizing to think like how long did it take to produce like just a few minutes of music it's not real time like it would be if you were, you know, just composing on like a keyboard. Yeah, it's 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 probably like months and months of work. I don't I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't around for it. And to be honest, I'm glad we can just like press a microphone here and have the different layers without any any trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, after uh, switched on box commercial success, she released a follow up album called The Well Tempered Synthesizer in November '69. This time with pieces from multiple composers. I want to say including. Beethoven. The the success of those albums allowed Wendy to move in together with Rachel Alkind in her NYC home, uh, living together and creating a studio space there. And to to latch on what you said about how much of a work it was, like we would love to share some music or at least be able to listen to music. But our 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 dear protagonist for today, she is such a perfectionist that most of the stuff isn't even available online because. It doesn't meet her audio quality standards. Mm -hmm. So, you know, think about all of the work that had to be done in 1968, 69, because something is just not up to the level where she wants to have it. Like, I bet that must have gotten a lot of retakes. Yeah. Well, and we will also uh, in our in our in our notes on the website we link to where you can go and purchase the albums if you'd like to listen to them. And there's also a little bit of music on Spotify, which goes along with what we're going to transition into right now, which is talking about movie work. With the success of her two albums, her first two albums, she attracted the attention of Hollywood, understandably. Uh, In 1971, Stanley Kubrick was beginning production on A Clockwork Orange, which was an adaptation of the book by Anthony Burgess. And Rachel Elkind got in touch with Kubrick's lawyer. She had some connections from working for Columbia Records. She was a secretary for Columbia at the time. And so she got in touch, reached out to Kubrick's lawyer and suggested Wendy Carlos and her synthesizer to score the movie. She was basically saying, hey, you're producing this really novel and interesting film. 
why don't you think about Synthesizer as a way to kind of complement that? As Elkin said, I sent him switched on Bach and the well-tempered Synthesizer. Kubrick's assistant called a few days later. He asked if we could come to England immediately. Two days later, we were on a flight. So it was like an instant, ah, yes, this is exactly what we're looking for. The New York Times called Carlos's score, which utilized vocoders to create a really haunting chorus of artificial voices in her versions of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, quote, a giant step past the banalities of most contemporary film tracks. This was one of the first times human voices kind of had been imitated electronically. And so initially, everyone was kind of scared about it. Um, Like test audiences were kind of freaked out. You know, they weren't sure it was going to come off well. Carlos actually said, we got a lot of uncomfortable reactions. People looked at us and said, oh my goodness, what is this? They were scared by it. And I mean, when you listen to it, if you've ever seen A Clockwork Orange, it's a fantastic film, but really disturbing And so you have this kind of, in some ways, uncanny valley quality to the soundtrack because you have these human voices that are not quite human and this classical sound going through, but there's just something off about it. Deeper than that, it also matches, right? Because it's supposed to set in like some imagined version of the future. So using technology in that way really mm-hmm. fit it. But at the same time, the entire arrogance of the main characters in, in Clockwork Orange, that also really matches the the cultural superiority people tend to feel when they listen to a lot of classical music. Yeah. So I guess in that sense, everything just lined up perfectly for that music to go with that movie. Yeah, it really kind of changed the game in terms of music scores. Yeah, and also in the general, um, if th- th- this movie, if memory serves me right, was released in 72, right? So if you're yes. thinking of the charts, what bands were there? Like we've had the last few albums by the, the like some some last few um, post passing of Jim Morrison Doors albums, you know, some last uh, collaboration or, or a compilation album by the Beatles. And from there, we moved into like the, the prog rock side of things. So, you know, music itself was also getting more experimental in which in, in because of that, I feel like they might have been willing to take the risk of getting Carlos to write this uh, or well, make this 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 movie soundtrack mm. um, like the the Pink Floyd of it all. And, and like <laughs> all of that entire landscape, the first few albums by Supertramp music itself was already getting more experimental. Carlos just matched that development perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm kind of lost track with different, <laughs> different music things there, but more movies and more music during the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, Carlos kept on releasing albums, though she gradually moved away from reworking classical pieces uh, into composing her own work. Um, the first album, which uh, with its own compositions, was Sonic Seasonings, a album with four tracks loosely inspired by the four seasons with field recordings and ambient sounds from nature. And there is a different person who had already done that at the time, albeit not an album technically and also not a recording. But, you know, if if we're talking about uh, a piece of work inspired by the Four Seasons, we got to mention Fivaldi. Like, obviously, that is still in, like, the ballpark of classical music. So Sonic Seasonings uh, started in 1970 and was finished mid-1971 while she was working on A Clockwork Orange, which, you know, is a huge lot of work for one person to fit in that short a time. And... Also, she 
predated uh, ambient and environmental music way before New Age was ever a thing. Kyle Dixon, one of the composers for Stranger Things, said the album was the first ambient album, essentially. It came before Tangerine Dreams Sight or Brian Eno's Discreet Music. So she really was ahead of the curve on this one. Mm -hmm. Carlos reunited with Stanley Kubrick for a foray into horror music for The Shining in 1980, although in the end they only ended up using two tracks credited to Carlos and Elkind, which I think are the two tracks that can be found on Spotify, right? Yeah, they're the they're the two uh, they're the two tracks that can be found on Spotify. And there's actually we we don't have time to really go into all of it here, but there was a lot of there was there's actually a really interesting story about her experience working with Kubrick for The Shining and how she and Rachel had produced a whole bunch of different tracks and Kubrick got really hung up on this other idea and there was a lot of disappointment in that they ended up going in a different direction. Um, you can read all of that in one of the sources that we're going to put on our uh, in our show notes. It's really interesting to kind of see what that experience was like and it seems like there was a lot of drama going on but you know in the end we got probably the two most like distinctive tracks and and haunting in my opinion like i i listened to the opening title several times while writing this outline <laughs> i'm just kind of stuck on why it's specifically these two tracks that are available to listen to because the way we've got to know Carla's while researching this, I feel like it's probably not her choice to make those tracks, put those tracks available to listen to. Like it might be because of legal issues with the movie uh, production uh, side of it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, also with the other tracks that are available on Spotify, which go along with her next movie foray. Yeah, exactly. So the other movie you mentioned was... Uh, 1982's Tron. Uh, she combined symphonic orchestral music from the London Philharmonic, UCLA Chorus, and Royal Albert Hall organ with her synthesizers for this movie. A article from Music Museum of New England states, while strikingly different in content and tone, the music for both A Clockwork Orange and Tron is trademark for Carlos. Illustory yet honest, spastic yet static, urgent yet emotive. Mm -hmm. So by this time, we're, we're talking 1980s, Elkind had moved away to France to live with her husband, and Carlos stayed in New York City with her new business partner, Anne-Marie Franklin, in a converted loft and studio. Um, it was enclosed in a freaking Faraday cage. Okay, I'm just... <laughs> yes. Yeah, she's still in this studio, I believe. Uh, yeah, it was enclosed in a in a Faraday cage, which is uh, like, a, like a metal or wire cage that shields uh, electronic equipment from radio and TV signals from outside and like reduces white noise. I just, I really love like how metal is that to be like... I'm going to enclose myself in a literal force field from outside sounds. Um, and she and her friends call her studio the spaceship, which is so great. There's uh, we'll, we'll put, we'll put notes for it in the, in the show notes, but um, 
in a keyboard magazine article that we read, there is like an entire section talking about her basically custom designed studio, the spaceship, and like there's blueprints. It's triangular. And, you know, she's like, I know that it takes up a whole bunch of space and it's super weird, but it produces the best sound. Red, I just love that entire <laughs> article so much. Like, why would you put that keyboard or why would you put that synthesizer in the middle of the room? That's like not Feng Shui or whatever. It's like, well, that's just where I get the best noise with my speakers that are there, 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 and there. Mm-hmm. It's just, it It also really shows how much of a perfectionist Carlos is and I love her for it. I love the, just the sheer music nerd, nerdiness of like in this keyboard magazine, they spend an entire like two page spread going over the like technical intricacies of the design of this studio. And it's great. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, So, Wendy released more studio albums in the 1980s. We wanted to highlight two here. There's Digital Moonscapes, which came out in 1984. And this was her first album to feature only digital synthesizers. So, we've moved from analog to digital, you know, moved from actually, like, manipulating, uh, you know, like a switchboard and being able to, you know, produce things on computers. And it combined her love of electronic music with her passion in astronomy, which, you know, you could tell is probably a big thing considering they call her Studio the Spaceship. We have a quote here, The nine-movement Moonscapes Suite, inspired by the major moons of the solar system, is performed by what Carlos calls a digitally synthesized orchestra. And for it, uh, she electronically created over 500 voices, quote unquote, that replicate different instruments. So Moog actually has a quote where he says, Wendy has built up lyrical sounds nobody ever heard coming out of a digital synthesizer before. Nobody is in her league, which I think is just like a big theme here is, you know, hey, people were doing these things before potentially or using this equipment and nobody was able to do it the way that she was. And, you know, because we're talking about the 1980s here, you know, by the time the uh, the technological development has made synthesizers available to public, right? So um, after the big room-sized synthesizers moog now also has a mini moog which we also know from like artists like kraftwerk and all of those electronic artists from the 70s and yet even though a lot of artists now have access to synthesizers i mean we're talking 80s at this point so you know that the synthesizer all all around (laughs) she still manages to stay ahead of the curve right yeah uh she followed digital moonscapes up with an album called beauty in the beast in 1986 and this is where we see her experimentation with alternate scales and musical tunings and kind of micro tonality which i don't understand but she's very very passionate about it uh, in this she combined music from non-western and quote-unquote old world cultures with new ideas like microtonal scales that she just that she created just for the album and she personally considers beauty in the beast one of the most important albums of her career because she finally was able to really dig into alternate scales, which was a passion of hers for a long time. Do you want me to elaborate on the the, the scales a little bit? Yeah, go for it. Um, so, you know, the, the way scales work, right, is we usually have these eight standard notes with like the semi half notes in between. Um, like the the sharps and uh, and the flats and all that stuff, which is majorly the Western way we in Europe and the US notate music. However, there are different versions you can do this. Like there are different scales. Um, the most popular one, I think, uh, at least in my general periphery, would be um, 
Arab music. So if you listen to artists like if you listen to artists from like Turkey, like Bülent Ersoy, then you'll find that their scales are just kind of working differently because, you know, apart from the regular notes with halves, you also go into like quarters and in that way, you know, microtonal scales are created. So um, the way our scale system works, that would just sound like an off pitch scale, mm. right? That would just be, that would just be an off scale, uh, off pitch note. However, in, in different scales, that would actually just be its own proper note halfway through. Um, because, you know, nothing is, uh, nothing is real. Everything is relative. And uh, <laughs> once again, we think the, the Western way to do it is the correct way where there, is, where there are actually a lot of different ways to do things. You know what? This, this seems like a good place to put in uh, our favorite jingle. Fuck, 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 colonialism. I wasn't sure that we were going to be able to work that one in for this episode, but you did it very well. Good job. <laughs> uh, you know, every chance to slam on colonialism is, is, is another one. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have what is probably my favorite, most unexpected thing ever is in 1988, she collaborated with Weird Al, that Weird Al, Weird yeah. Al Yankovic, on a parody album of Peter and the Wolf. Uh, which, you know, kind of let her, as she said, uh, to let her sense of humor out of the cage. And in it, they rearranged the music of Peter and the Wolf with a MIDI orchestra. And so this was nominated for a Grammy uh, for Best Album for Children in 1989. And uh, I don't think that it won, but the fact that it was nominated and that she just got to hang out with Weird Al and make a fun parody classical album was really fun. Moving on to the 1990s, we're moving on to era in time in which I was actually born. Wendy re-recorded Switched On Bach in 1992 for its 25th anniversary as Switched On Bach 2000. That just seems appropriate considering how ahead of everything she always was. 1992, <laughs> let's call it 2000, seems about right. Um, <laughs> this time she used digital instruments and recordings to bring it into the modern era. Her most recent studio album, Tales of Heaven and Hell, was released in 1998, combining, again, I quote, themes from A Clockwork Orange with a dark and forbidding goth mass. She spent the next five years remastering her entire back catalog with extra bonus material and notes and designing and constructing a custom hybrid musical assembly with the four manual Wurlitzer II, as she mentions on her website. Yeah. And again, there's like an entire segment in one of the Keyboard Magazine articles about how she's been developing and constructing this new piece of machinery. Uh, Wendy was presented with the Seamus Life Achievement Award in 2005, and that's S-E-A-M-U-S, -S, standing for the Society for Electroacoustic Music in the United States, which is a great acronym. And she has delivered several papers at conferences and institutions, including NYU, Audio Engineering Society's Digital Audio Conference, and a whole bunch more. She released an album, Recovering Lost Scores, in 2005, which contains previously out-of-print material of hers, including her soundtrack to the British movie Woundings, and she also included in this Rediscovering Lost Scores all of the music left out of her other film scores. So she has, like, a huge catalog of things that just weren't used in those films, and so she decided to kind of put them into this album. 
She hasn't spoken publicly or given interviews since before 2010, with much of her own personal website updates kind of slowing down around 2009. Uh, Her last published interview was in 2007, and currently she's 81 years old and lives a quiet life in New York with several dogs and cats. I mean, like, every picture that you see kind of coming out from her recently is, like, her in front of her synthesizers and keyboards and everything with, like, a cat on her shoulder. Um, There are, like, three pages of pictures and stories on her website with, you know, information about all of her dogs and cats over the years, and uh, I just, I really, really love that dedication. Her website is so dense and amazing. Uh, It's very, it's 16-bit friendly, and it's just, it's like a great archive of, like, early internet culture, too. Yeah, I guess uh, you you read an interview from 2001 where they only got three questions in before they started talking about the cats, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's just, okay, tell us about the cats, though, or, like, some cat jumped on the lap and then the conversation just shifted. Yeah, there there was one interview where somebody was talking about how she called them at, like, 1 a.m. when one of the cats was having kittens and they talked for like three hours about the cats, which was great. Wendy has not really done a lot of updating to her website or or appearing uh, since the 2009-2010 until, you know, she came and put that update on her website last year with the publication of the new book, so 2020. She's also an accomplished solar eclipse photographer, and her work has been published online by NASA, and her photos have even appeared on magazine covers. She's basically traveled all over the world to photograph astronomical objects, and so if you want to see some of her solar eclipse photography, you can visit her website. So before we move into our our next segment, uh, we just wanted to kind of <laughs> present a couple of like loose thoughts from Wendy in, you know, articles or interviews or on her website. We just wanted to share some of some of these <laughs> delightful quotes. Right. So we're, we'll, we'll switch off. Switched off Bach. If I'm <laughs> there you go. If I can be so free to make that joke. Um, so the first one we've got written down here is the greatest thing we've got going in our culture is our eccentrics. I was once embarrassed by my eccentricities, but now I value them. Um, moving on from uh, like the actual music uh, that was being developed at the time, and uh, guessing from this, I think this is like late seventies. Yeah, this is like seventy nine. Seventy nine, yeah. Um, so there, she says, vocoders are becoming a cliche. You hear the Star Wars sounds, Battlestar Galactica music, and the aliens usually talk with a vocoder. So once again, I think we were a little too early. Like this is Wendy being aware of how much of an early adapter she actually was. Right. And how freaked out people were at the like electronic voices in A Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. I think she was specifically talking about that, about how people were kind of scared. And and now, you know, years later, it's like, well, you know, vocoders are now just kind of passe and cliche at this point. What I really loved reading about her own philosophies with music is she talked a lot about how, you know, regardless of the tools that you're using, it's still about practice and form and having the skills and not necessarily, you know, needing natural talent, but that if you put in the work, you could develop the skills. So she says, in the case of the tools of computerdom, the canvas and the colors are different, but the steps of making great music are still the same steps. Form is still the biggest bugaboo in any piece of music longer than a minute or two. She also goes on to say, somebody was quoted as saying that there were going to be so many more Beethovens now, thanks to the new technology. It's wanton lies. That is not true. 
Art comes from creative people doing a job well. Some part of it is a gift, in which case you could take no bows for it. Other parts, it's just pure sweat work, in which case you can take a bow for it. There was a lot of uh, people, you know, saying like, ah, oh, well, now that anybody can, mu- you know, make music in their bedroom, there's going to be so many people who do it. And, you know, she really was like, well, I mean, you know, it's making it accessible for people, but you still have to put it in the work. I guess if we want to draw a parallel on that, it probably goes for podcasters. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The amount of times, the amount of times we had that conversation, it's like, okay, but you still, <laughs> you still need to like actually put in some work and, you know, think critically about what right. you're putting out there. I say to, you know, every three white dudes talking about movies and drinking beer podcast out there. It's fine. So, um, in one interview, she also mentioned what records she listens to at, uh, at home. Um, where she mentioned ELP, so Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. However, when the conversation shifted to the digital music or electronic music landscape at the time, it's nice to know, she says, that synthesizers have been used in disco, but it would have been healthier for the industry had it not been. If you're asking me to name the hit disco singles, I can't since generally, since I generally flee from anything that repeats the same sequence more than 16 times, um, which is just wonderfully nerthing. Like, yeah, no, I can't listen to the same bars too often. Um, she continues, but I know I sound scholarly and tight-assed and pompous. Um <laughs> Sad. She doesn't like a good hook. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Yeah. You're not gonna you're not gonna you know, you're not gonna catch Wendy Carlos out here listening to, you know, basic pop. Uh (laughs) but I also feel like, you know, she also undermines the 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 power pop and disco can have. Because absolutely because of disco and prog artists like Electric Light Orchestra that used a vocoder and then moved into disco. That that like art it's artists like those who actually made people not afraid of the vocoder anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh so yeah, that's what we've got on what Wendy is currently up to, at least as far as we know. And so now we want to uh we want to get into the gay stuff. Uh y'all have, you know, listened to us talk a lot about Wendy's career and her musical prowess, and now we're going to switch into our why do we think they're gay segment. So We've been really uh, deliberate and careful about, you know, how we're presenting Wendy's story. For the first 10 years of her career, she actually published her works and albums under a different name and identity, even amid her enormous success with Switched on Bach and A Clockwork Orange. It was only in 1979 that she publicly came out of the closet as a trans woman through an interview, oddly enough, at least to me, in Playboy magazine. Much of the description of her experience and gender transition journey comes from this Playboy article. And so what we really wanted to do is kind of present her, you know, her whole story in terms of her career and her life, and then kind of separate out these elements. A journalist named Sam Manzella in a New Now Next article writes that since her initial coming out, Carlos has rarely addressed her gender identity in interviews. That may have something to do with the way her story has been told. Even after she discussed her transition in great detail, reporters and editors continued to print her dead name. Hence, we will not be mentioning her dead name here and have not, and we've striven to present her life and career based on her accomplishments and musical prowess, as I said, before even getting to discuss her gender. But we do want to acknowledge how absolutely trailblazing her coming out was. 
We have a quote here that says, in 1970s America, it was not only unheard of, but potentially career-ending move, not to mention dangerous. And so, you know, if you are doing research on Wendy Carlos, you will see her dead name out there. We are choosing not to mention it at all because that's shitty. So yeah, so we're going to kind of break this next segment up into two sections. We're going to talk about the, the gender of it all and then the sexuality of it all. And most of, like like we were saying, most of the information that we know about her own kind of gender journey comes from this Playboy article. So we take some of that with a grain of salt and we'll be talking about that article at length. So um, Carlos knew she was trans from an early age. Um, she describes, I was about five or six and I remember being convinced I was a little girl, much preferring long hair and girls clothes and not knowing why my parents didn't see it clearly. I didn't understand why they insisted on treating me like a little boy, but I wanted them to love me. And I felt that if I behaved the way I wanted to, I would lose their love. So I began hiding my feelings from a fairly, very early age. And this quote just like tore me to pieces. Uh, yeah. It's a very relatable but also be very sad um yeah. she also reflected that she used to steal her mother's clothes and wear them to bed and when her parents caught her they'd make excuses like uh oh that name is just practicing for halloween she describes the disconnect between her internal sense of gender and what she was uh, experiencing in her body she says i draw pictures of myself very accurate portraits of my face and then erase the short hair and draw longer hair along with a touch of lipstick to see how i'd look as a woman and, you know, she is a very good artist. Like, if you want to see some of her art, like drawings, we were mentioned, you, you mentioned you can see on her website. So, you know, she is very intense about this, this, how she would look. Uh, she preferred playing with other girls in the playground as a child, which would result in plenty of raspberries from more than tight ass boys, as Carlos put it. And she experienced uh, other harassment from students at school that we don't need to go into great detail about. Yeah. She gets pretty detailed in the in the Playboy article, but we don't yeah, we don't need to. Bring yeah, that exactly. Up. That that can that's nothing but triggery mess. As uh, many trans people might relate to, puberty started, and she found it harder to suppress her feelings and start to struggle with her mental health. At some point during my teenage years, she says, I tried to pretend these feelings didn't exist. I told myself I didn't have all of those inclinations, that I was straight, normal. By late adolescence, as I started to become more masculine, I began to hate my body. <laughs> she says, it sounds so mad, doesn't it? So, I mean, even she can, you know, see the, the kind of pointlessness of such, you know, self-deprecation, but it's the case. When she moved into uh, kind of her college years, she struggled even more with dysphoria in college and described it as anguish as it became harder and harder to suppress those feelings. And this, oh God, this this description of her dysphoria breaks my heart. Uh, so, I mean, like this whole segment, just, you know, trigger warnings for very dysphoric feelings. Uh, she says, I felt set apart. I felt that nature had made a mistake. That's a cliche, but that's how I felt. Extreme confusion. From time to time, I was able to repress it, and I don't know, maybe I thought that I'd close my eyes and then suddenly wake up and find I was a woman. Ugh. <sighs> yeah, it's, it, it is heartbreaking. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. So here we've got a little content warning for suicidality. Um, so press that skip button if, if you think that it's necessary. As a graduate student at Columbia in 1962, her depression worsened and she began to experience increasingly suicidal feelings. So she decided to pursue her transition. 
and made a list of the things I needed to do with my life if I was going to survive. At the top of that list was to find a doctor someplace who would help me change my sex. So yeah, she just that specific if I was going to survive. Like that's a very, I want to say practical way to put it, but it Mm -hmm. does show how bad her depression actually had gotten at that point. Yeah. And at the time, you know, Carlos was just beginning to learn and acknowledge that she may not actually be the only person with these experiences and feelings. And I think that really points to the extreme importance of knowing where we come from and seeing other people in our past. So she actually became familiar with the story of Christine Jorgensen, who was an American trans woman who was actually the first person to become essentially a media sensation after her transition and gender affirmation surgery in the 1950s. If you've ever seen, uh, and we'll do a whole episode on her at some point, but there's a, a whole headline and newspaper spread that's like, XGI becomes American beauty or something like that. And that's Christine Jorgensen. And so she was really one of the first trans people that became a household name, um, at least in the US. The turning point for her in, you know, kind of pursuing her transition came in 1967 when she read The Transsexual Phenomenon by Dr. Harry Benjamin, which she said, quote, gave me a little more courage to accept myself and stop suppressing my feelings. And indeed, it proved an explanation for all the alienated feelings I'd had since my earliest memories. So this really allowed her to kind of create a context for what she was feeling, thanks to this sexologist, Terry Benjamin. She, that same year, reached out and made an appointment with the Benjamin Foundation. And after multiple consultations, she began hormone therapy as a starting point by early 1968. Together with the doctors, they started with discussing various methods of addressing her dysphoria and, quote, condition and kind of putting all the pieces together. She said in this Playboy article, at first I was confused. I thought I had to come up with physical proof. So physical proof for like, you know, what was going on, some biological imperative to this is why I feel like I need to change genders. Uh, But she says, but then I realized the proof was within myself. The only evidence I had was the history of my feelings. The overwhelming need I had was to resolve the conflict and become the person I had to be. That was my evidence. And I think that this is really significant saying like, look, like your feelings and your internal compass, that is your proof. That is enough. You know, especially at this time where gender, you know, gender dysphoria is considered a condition, a medical problem, something maybe hormonally wrong with you that you want to change genders that you, you know, are wanting to change your body. And so I I thought that that was a really, really significant quote from her. She also apparently interacted with some other trans folks in what she called a a kind of transsexual underground, mostly around doctor's offices. You know, people would kind of share stories and, you know, swap suggestions. But she didn't really get very involved in the community. She wanted to remain stealth and protect her career. And, you know, she really was more concerned with just like going in with her doctors and, you know, working on the medical and transition parts of this. So she wasn't so aware of clubs and bars where she might meet other trans folks and get involved with the community (laughs) yeah i was i was reading this interview and i was thinking wait what's the timeline of this all right because wendy might be the only queer person (laughs) in new york in 1969 that's so introverted that she was completely oblivious to you know some specific queer places that may or may not have gained some notoriety in that time yeah maybe you know one that is very famous for being a 
huge catalyst for kicking off the queer and trans rights movements, but, you know, specifically in that year, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, just bars now. Nah, I'm just going to stick in my spaceship. I'm fine. I'm good. Right. Yeah, I love it. I mean, that's that's a very relatable feel like from 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 one of the quiet gays i i feel that i'm like mm, i don't want to go to a bar i just want to like hang out in my pajamas and be queer and trans while eating popcorn on my couch i mean as as much as i like a fun night with alcoholic beverages i also prefer like a, okay you know what my friends come to my house and we'll drink beer and we'll listen to some fun bleeps and bloops that i made yes and and you don't need to pay $12 for each one of those drinks. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. speaking of 1969, Wendy began uh, presenting consistently as a woman around that time, which led to difficulties related to the sudden success of Switched on Bach. And, you know, as I say that, I am thinking there might be some awareness of the entire Stonewall stuff because, you know, she started consistently presenting as a woman in like mid-1969. I wonder if that was inspired by said riots. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like it just kind of coincides with what she was, you know, internally experiencing at the time and, and around the time that she was, you know, reading books and discovering that transness was a thing. Um, but yeah, I'd be really, really curious to kind of, I mean, she doesn't really talk a lot about this aspect of her life, but I'd really love the opportunity to either speak to her directly or have someone speak to her about, you know, her own experience, at least in the years since of the queer community, of the trans community and her own kind of awareness of where that's gone. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm just surprised no one else seemed to have asked her, which is also like well, it, a I mean, call it's... for more queer people in journalism. Exactly. Yeah, I'm like, well, well, but it seems like the people that, you know, have talked to her have not been of the community and instead have kind of treated, at least in the 70s and early 80s, where we get a lot of these interviews coming from a very scandalizing, othering perspective. Maybe like a little tokenism. Yeah, absolutely. Tokenism. Absolutely. All right. Either way, um, uh, 1969, uh, around the sudden success of Switched on Bach, the height of her career coincided with the most tumultuous era of her gender journey, as, as previously mentioned. But at the time, only a few people in her life, including producer and friend Rachel Elkind, knew about her being trans. Fearing that her transition would affect her career and convinced by friends that the best option would be to remain in the closet at the time, she essentially tried to disappear from the public eye for the next seven years. Um, so not ready to disclose her transition publicly. Uh, the few times she performed or made appearances, she did so um, in, in drag, basically wearing pasted on sideburns and a wig. Um, you can you can see some of these in like BBC videos from like 1969, like just in a famous bow tie and some some sideburns slapped onto the side of her face. Yeah. Uh, her last live performance before coming out of the closet publicly in 1979 was with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra uh, shortly after a switch on Bach. I think it was in 1969, actually. And it was pretty traumatic for her. She tells the story saying, My angst was high. Rachel said I was getting so close to the edge, I could have had a nervous breakdown had I continued performing. I insisted to Rachel I would not fly to St. Louis as a man, and I didn't. I went dressed as I normally would have as a woman. When we got into the hotel room, I ceased being a woman and suddenly became this dead name person, and I began crying hysterically. Eventually, I pasted on my sideburns and put on a wig to hide my hair. I filled my pores with dirt from an eyebrow pencil to simulate five o'clock shadow. I tried to lower my voice as bottom heavy as it could get. 
tried to be macho. It couldn't have mattered less. Ugh. Yeah. Um, she would dress in uh, men's clothing for meetings with Kubrick during the Clockwork Orange years, who she said could tell something was going on, but he wasn't entirely aware of what that thing would be. She says Kubrick was so intense on the project that if I'd come on stark naked, he'd probably just have asked if I were cold. Um, uh, speaking of interactions with famous people, multiple other musicians, including Stevie Wonder, George Harrison, and Keith Emerson, also wanted to meet with her after the release of her first two albums and A Clockwork Orange. Um, but Carlos and Elkind maintained the secrecy, turning them away, making up stories that Carlos was away visiting family, going on tour, etc., etc. Um, she says, I would listen to them from upstairs. I accepted the sentence, but it was bizarre to have a life opening up on the one hand and to be locked away on the other. Yeah. So, you know, she really is like conflicted at this time. Of course, she has the world at her feet because of Switched on Bach to a point where George Harrison, Stevie Wonder want to meet up with you. But she is like so terrified and like frozen by the possibility of running into transphobic encounters that she just rather stay in her room. Right. Yeah. Ugh. So the commercial success of Switched on Bach allowed Wendy to pursue her gender affirming surgery starting in 72. And she had her official name change on Valentine's Day, 79. Um, later that same year, Wendy came out officially and publicly as a trans woman under her new name, giving her first interview in seven years in Playboy magazine. So uh, this, this Playboy article, the article and interview uh, was published in May 1979 and is the compilation of several conversations with the columnist Arthur Bell that happened between December 1978 to 1979. The interview itself is uh, in some ways pretty horrendous to read in 2021. It's supposed to be her big public coming out, which is pretty hard if the magazine keeps misgendering you. In describing things like her gender-affirming operations, they talk about comparing it to castration, which Carlos reacts rightfully angrily to. And Arthur Bell definitely veers into fetishization at several times. Um, he, you know, asks very sexually intrusive questions, not consider, you know, not surprising considering it's Playboy magazine. Um, but there's like some, you know, really choice things about how, you know, when he saw her in a skirt, suddenly he was like, oh, of course this is a woman. Like, it's gross. It's gross. Um, so if you decide to read it, you know, just kind of take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, it also goes on to explain how she was hard to nail down with certain questions. It's like, well, yeah, because you're asking some really fucking intrusive questions. Excuse me. Nice. Yeah. It goes into very explicit details about Carlos's transition, her body, her sex life, medical procedures. It's very, it's very trans 101 for cis people. But like this quote from a journalist, uh, Shrishti Upal says, her answers and patience helped make space in public discourse for queer artists who came after her. What I thought was really interesting, though, is that Wendy very specifically reached out to Playboy herself with the intent on telling her story. And so when when she was asked, like, why, why Playboy? She says something that really kind of surprised me. Uh, she says, I've been looking for the right forum and have considered all the options. Playboy is ideal. The magazine has always been concerned with liberation, and I'm anxious to liberate myself. So while we get, on the one hand, this, like, really kind of fetishization aspect, which we're always really kind of hyper aware of in the trans community, it's also really telling that, like, this is the space in 1979 where she felt like she could do this safely. 
Um, she said to the question, why are you coming out now specifically? Well, I'm scared, she said. I'm very frightened. I don't know what the effect of this is going to have. I fear for my friends we're going to become targets for or the wrath of those who judge what I've done. Also afraid from the musical standpoint, it may prevent me from being taken seriously again. But as most trans people might be able to relate to, she says, I've gotten tired of lying. I think that in the past couple of years, the danger of allowing the public to know about me have lessened, the climate has changed, and the time is ripe. She opens up about her lifelong dysphoria, her parents' reaction to her transition, and lamenting over the effect being stealth has had on her career. She says, the fact that I couldn't perform publicly stifled me. I lost a decade as an artist, which sounds surprising from someone as introvert like she strikes me as the person like i'd rather sit in my studio and fumble with my machines right. instead of you know performing live right but, but i, I, but I mean she talked that. about like she also mentioned how much she really would have loved to work with live orchestras more True. and you know she was kind of she was kind of um cut off from that opportunity yeah, also like describing the the uh experience earlier like it, it also shows how important uh, live music is to her like the lengths she went to to perform with the st louis symphony orchestra like that mm -hmm. was the fact that she was willing to do that shows how much she actually cares for live music right yeah uh there are some pieces and quotes we wanted to specifically highlight from the interview and the first one that we wanted to start with is something really really fascinating is that in 1979 carlos is saying in this playboy article she says i wish transsexual hadn't become current Transgender is a better description. Which leads us to our word of the week. Word of the week. Gay word of history. So for this segment of word of the week, we're going to talk about the word transgender. I wanted to pull out this word because I don't think that we've talked specifically about when and where this terminology came into use over what we think of as older terms such as like transsexual or transvestite. So before the mid 20th century, obviously much of the terms used were super medicalized as we've discussed before. Transsexual or transsexualism uh, was in use since shortly following Magnus Hirschfeld's use of the German transsexualismus in 1923. So we talked a lot about Magnus Hirschfeld in one of our Nazi punks fuck off episodes. So you can go back and listen to For all of that. someone who speaks actual German, it's so hilarious to hear you say I, that. No, I know. Do you want to, do you want to give it? it was, I didn't even try. <laughs> Transsexualismus. There you go. Yes. This, see, this is, this is why I have Hannah on the, the podcast. Um, so we have Dr. Harry Benjamin, who we talked about earlier as his work of a transition point for Wendy. He claimed to be the first person to use the word transsexual in a public lecture in 1953, and he popularized the term in his 1966 book. Psychiatrist John F. Olivin is credited with coining the term transgender in a 1965 book called Sexual Hygiene and Pathology. He wrote that the previously in vogue term, transsexualism, is, quote, misleading, actually. Transgenderism is meant because sexuality is not a major factor in primary transvestism. So he's basically saying that, like, sexuality doesn't really have a huge amount 
of impact on people's reasons for wanting to dress in a different gender presentation. Uh, from this point on, transgender was more popularized with multiple different definitions from various community members. Uh, Virginia Price, who was the founder of the magazine Transvestia, who used it in the December 1969 issue in an article. And then in the 1970s, mid-1970s, we see things like trans people and trans gender with a hyphen in the middle, so trans-gender, and other terms like transgenderist or transgenderal were used to refer to folks who didn't necessarily want to go through physical transition, but wanted to live at different genders as different genders than they were assigned at birth, so kind of a dichotomy between, you know, physical bodily presentation and kind of lifestyle presentation. In the 90s, we have Leslie Feinberg, who wrote Transgender Liberation, a movement whose time has come, and Leslie identified transgender as an umbrella term that could and should be used for all forms of gender nonconformity, much like we, in many areas of the community, use the word queer as a catch-all. And so there's more to this, but we just wanted to give kind of like a little, you know, mini history of these as, uh, you know, as you learned, if you have listened to our Hirschfeld episode, we go a lot more into uh, transsexual and invert and Uranian and all of these other words that were being used ahead of time. But I really wanted to kind of like, you know, really, really talk about the transition between the two terms. So yes, back to our main episode. So we've got a couple more quotes from um, from Wendy here. One of them is, Transsexuality is a crash course in dealing with the fear of rejection. Those who aren't sexually at peace with themselves tend to be the most uptight around me. Which is, <laughs> is, is, is fun. It's like yeah. I make people question their gender and sexuality. Of course I do. Come on. Right. Yeah. She says, you know, people who are kind of, you know, more liberal and just kind of go with the flow with life are like, all right, sure, whatever. What do you want for dinner? Um. <laughs> uh, I love the next quote specifically because, you know, it really is basically the core of what I do with Queer Sounds. When Playboy asks, is there uh, an analogy between your music and you being trans? That's just entire that those two things that go hand in hand. I'm always entertained by that. <laughs> Carlos says, Switched on Bach in 1969 was a good musical parameter where transsexuality in 79 is a really good sexual and attitudinal social parameter so i'm just loving how she casually uses herself as what society is capable of right yes i really like that also just in general where bell's reactions to carlos like all of a sudden she thinks oh my god she's hot what the hell's going on here right yeah he also like goes into like at some point during their interviews he like had an accident and broke his foot or something like that and suddenly like he talks about her being you know like this this florence nightingale figure taking care of him and, and it's like okay dude whatever keep your mommy issues in your pants oh yeah oh Ooh, now i don't know how i feel about calling her space mom <laughs> i'm like oh no ew. oh Whatever, we can have this and Arthur Bell can go, I don't know, do more stuff with Playboy. Um, this one is is not necessarily a comment on gender, but I love it and I wanted to put it in this in this segment. Um, on her disdain, quote unquote, for, for disco and kind of her disappointment in where synthesizer music has gone, you know, in between Switched on Bach and 1979, she says, I don't want to stop them. I'm only saddened to see that it isn't further advanced. 
I've got a right to my opinion, and I'm going to continue to be angry. If not an angry young man, at least an angry middle-aged woman. (laughs) Which, I just, I don't know, something about the absolute candor with which Wendy talks just really tickles me. She also calls herself, like, chatty on her website, and she mentions in an interview that she has a big mouth, um, you know, that she won't won't shut up about things probably when she should. She's just really candid. Surprisingly enough for someone who uses a lot of filters in their everyday work, she doesn't have a lot of an internal filter. Um... (laughs) (laughs) if I may pun. Also, you know, that just goes to show how stealthy you can actually be, even though you've got a big mouth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, She also really made comments to de-emphasize the focus on, you know, quote unquote, the operation, which everybody was so obsessed with, especially in this interview. And so she really, in multiple times throughout the interview, really tries to make sure to get across to Belle that her physical transition was only a small part of her identity and sense of gender, which is really important considering trans people still, right now, to this day, are still, you know, trying to shut down questions like, what's in your pants? Have you had the operation? Blah, blah, blah. Like, everybody's so concerned with trans people's bodies. And in 1979 here, you know, while she is going into a lot of detail, which she did not have to, you know, she is still trying to say, look, this is only a part of it. So one quote she says is, don't forget the operation, though it's the thing that may be most important in the public's mind, is really the least important or least interesting thing to me. I really love this one. She says, I feel that some innermost part of me was always a woman, so that all I have really done is change my suit of bone and skin, which might be the most like heavy metal badass way to put transition ever. I just love like this is just something so goth about it. It's like I've changed my suit of bone and skin. Like I feel like throughout her entire career, she walks a very thin line between metal and badass and just like dry and practical because changing your suit of skin, that sounds very much, yeah, I'm just going to change like whatever outside wall I've used. Going to change the container. Yeah, exactly. To her, it might be equally as practical like as as i need to replace my the toner in my printer or something right yeah i think she she also there's a there's a quote that she has like earlier on in the playboy article she says like one of her friends kind of jokes and calls her the new twat in town and i just like i don't know i i don't know how to feel about that quote but it definitely makes me giggle and it makes me you know happy that at least it's coming from someone who can kind of look at all of this as with a sense of humor and at the absurdity of it all and everybody being so fascinated with <laughs> this small part of her, you know, right. transition. Uh, as as we mentioned, right, after the 79 Playboy interview, Carlos rarely spoke about her gender identity, choosing instead to focus on her music, understandably. In this article, there were only, it only made up maybe two columns talking about her music, which she found, you know, she was pretty betrayed by. Um, and so you'll see in most of the interviews that come after this, she's specifically talking about her music, her equipment, etc. But there is an article in People from 1985 that we quoted from earlier, where she said that coming out publicly released so much weight off her shoulders, basically, that she found a renewed energy and creativity in her work. And, you know, delightfully, she she found that the response to her truth was less devastating than she feared. She said, the public turned out to be amazingly tolerant, or if you wish, indifferent. There had never been any need of this charade to have taken place. It had proven a monstrous waste of years of my life. Um, So, 
you know, it's sad that she felt like she had to be stealth all these years and she lost all of these opportunities, especially because it kind of turned out to be a somewhat non-issue. But, you know, you can completely understand why the decisions were made. Yeah, but I also feel like it could have been a right assessment of the time. Like she felt 1979 was the right time to come out. If she would have done the same thing in 69, the public might have responded differently. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we wanted to put in just like a little bit of sexuality uh, before we kind of get to our our main takeaways and final thoughts. So uh, take it away. So when it comes to uh, um, Wendy's sexuality, we couldn't find anything um, specific uh, about relationships that she had. Um, She does, however, speak in the Playboy article about her own sexual journey and how it coincided with her gender identity. Wendy mentions on her website that she's gay and in the Playboy article, she identifies herself as bisexual. Um, She says, my own orientation has been pretty much bisexual uh, and by my late 20s, I knew that I was flexible. So she's pretty casual about it because like, it seems like a throwaway comment because the, the gender journey is what she specifically focuses on. Before her transition, Wendy described her effective asexuality in part brought on by discomfort with her own body and trauma around her gender. She says, I had no sex life at all. People knew I had no interest in hetero or homo or any other kind of sex. They just accepted that in me. Until I felt at peace with my own body, The thought of sexual contact was pretty abhorrent. Uh, I'd been cut off from the whole area of sex for most of my life, and I think I'm still coming to grips with my sexuality in a way an adolescent would. So, you know, she said this in the Playboy interview, right? So she was like 40 at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really important to bring this up because, you know, I think um, any part of this, any part of her sexuality, any part of her attraction, any part of her journey around this is valid. A lot of people will, what's the word, Um, will kind of disregard um, asexuality when there's pieces of it that may come from trauma or may come from, you know, internal discomfort and repulsion for sex. But Asexuality is a spectrum and there's so many different, you know, reasonings that someone might identify as asexual. And I think it's really significant and interesting to to hear her talk about how, you know, it's not just that, you know, she felt shame and, uh, you know, felt like she couldn't, but she she expresses that the whole idea of any sort of sexual content was abhorrent and that she'd been cut off from the whole area of this and she had no interest in it. Um, and I think it's really interesting that, you know, as as kind of her own gender aligned more with herself, she became more comfortable. She was able to, you know, kind of explore different aspects of herself that were not available to her otherwise. But that doesn't cancel out that period of her life as well. Also, I feel like it's worth mentioning that we are the ones who put the word asexuality in the outlines yes. here. She might yeah. not even she might not even describe herself with the word asexuality per se. Right. But we wanted to bring it up as kind of a parallel and to give truth to that part of her experience. Before we move into our, you know, our ratings, we wanted to close things out with some conclusions and final thoughts on Wendy Carlos's legacy, both in the music world and also, you know, her role as kind of a pioneer in the trans community. 
because why why not talk about how much she has influenced so many areas of the world? Absolutely. So to just start with like a random British band you might have heard of, the Rolling Stones bought <laughs> a synthesizer like literally the year after Switched on Bach was released. And you know the same thing goes for the Beatles, as we mentioned with the Maxwell Silver Hammer anecdote earlier. Um, it's just so entertaining. Like, oh, wow, what the fuck is going on here? Like, let's absolutely buy one of these machines. And at that point, you know, that was before the mini Moog came out. So that was still a room-sized contraption that they had to work with. We also have uh, Will Gregory from the band Goldfrap, who reflected on Switched On Box immense influence on him. He said, Nothing for me lived up to that record. It brought the synthesizer into the mainstream as an expressive instrument, not just a sci-fi effects machine. Wendy set up these otherworldly sounds, and this is my favorite part of the quote, she made the music jump into 3D which I think is really cool. Um, then uh, the previously mentioned Kyle Dixon and his collaborator Michael Stein, also known as the composer for the Stranger Things soundtrack, um, they discovered Switched on Bach in the early 2000s and felt it matched the audio world they were trying to create. They say, um, she taught me to dig deeply into the instrument. She was a musician like that. Franco Terry, the person who did the last interview that Carlos gave publicly, he says, it's amazing that she has managed to do so many things that have had such an impact on musical history. And yet she has always remained outside the musical establishment. In terms of her legacy and influence on trans artists, which we really wanted to highlight is I think it's really significant that many people and commentators and musical scholars believe that the publicity surrounding Wendy's transition, quote, radically changed how her work was perceived, appreciated and discussed. And Carlos herself felt that she was underappreciated and not acknowledged for the recognition she deserved in her career had she potentially not gone through her transition. As Playboy asked her, if there hadn't been the need to stay in the closet, do you feel you would have affected the world of music? Would music have changed if you had remained dead name? To which she answers, absolutely. I'm convinced of that. But what we really wanted to highlight is that she did completely change the world of music. Synth pop, EDM, electronica, none of that was possible without her. And queer and trans musicians and artists today look up to her as a trailblazer. Uh, Shrishti Uptal, Uptal, who was writing for Gay is Family, who we mentioned before, wrote that she's a trailblazer, quote, as someone who answered invasive and hurtful questions. So they, meaning current trans and queer musicians wouldn't have to. In New Now Next, uh, Manzala, we mentioned her before, writes decades after Switched on Bach, the Tron soundtrack and her other contributions to 70s and 80s synth music, a new wave of queer musicians can make the kind of songs and albums they envision and love without their identities holding them back. Uh, Untuck, a collective to provide space and voice to queer and trans artists in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, hosted one night tribute to Carlos in January 2020 with multiple artists playing synth music inspired by her. Founder Lorelei Kretzinger expresses her thoughts on the ties between electronic music and trans or non-binary identities. It's liberating to be able, she says, to express yourself online, to create your own world. And the accessibility of electronic music is really appealing to any marginalized community. 
Uh, there was also in 2018, going back a little bit, a festival called Moogfest. They actually hosted another tribute to Carlos for the 50th anniversary of Switched on Bach, which had a lineup of all women and gender nonconforming performers. One of those performers, LA-based electronic musician and queer woman of color, Karen Gandhi, was so grateful to learn about Carlos's legacy. And she says, usually we imagine the analog synth community as a very homogenous community. Wendy Carlos made people who are booking festivals more intentional about reaching out to gender nonconforming folks and queer folks and women in a way that I don't think would have happened had she not been one of the biggest contributors to electronic music. So this shift, actually putting Wendy Carlos on the map, made us musicians more open-minded to say, oh wow, this genre is actually not what we thought it was. It's something else. And that is really freaking cool. I wanted to add one last thing to that because if we um, also look at Carlos's use of like the vocoder, um, that is like a trope in trans music <laughs> at this point. Like if we listen to hyper pop artists such as Dorian Electra or Sophie R.I.P. or 100 Gex, like the entire concept of trans people really leaning into a uh, vocoder or any filter over your voice to make it sound different because, you know, the way voices sound or the, the, the way the way people tend to gender and lower or higher voices mm, mm-hmm. and just cover that up with electronic filters just to fuck with it. That's like that wouldn't have been possible without without the work Carlos has done. Yeah, I thought it was really important to kind of bring us into right now and the huge proliferation of synth music in the trans community. And I mean, as uh, as Kretzinger mentioned, right, like it's there's a connection there, you know, being able to to sit in your own space, create your own world, to be able to make music with this level of accessibility that isn't necessarily always afforded to trans and gender nonconforming and queer people and people of color in mainstream studio environments environments allows for that connection to really thrive. And it's interesting to to talk about this too, because I don't want to put words in Wendy's mouth and say, like, oh, you know, this this music is is allegorical to trans experience, etc. Kretzinger actually mentioned that she finds that a lot of people, you know, will try to put specifically a trans lens on everything that she makes. And sometimes that might come from that perspective, but also she really wants to emphasize the merit of like the music standing on its own. But I think it, it is really significant. We, we have to really kind of give props to the fact that Wendy Carlos is still inspiring and influencing folks in these communities right now, even if she personally doesn't interact with the community at large herself. Absolutely. Yeah. For our our last little bit, um, you know, just a pop culture tie-in. Uh, I mean, there there isn't really any kind of adaptation of her story and work, but you can look directly to the movies that she worked yeah, on. Yeah, and um, you know, although the movies Carlos did the music for, that didn't always age too well. Especially a Clockwork Orange became the domain of like edge lords who glorify misogyny and violence that it, that movie portrays. It's definitely worth um, watching them and just focus on the music, which I find so strange. Because, like, if you if you're watching Clockwork Orange and like glorifying Alex, the main character, like you're not watching it, right? It's 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 like the it's like the dudes who watch Fight Club and like idolize Tyler Durden, and you're like, you didn't under you didn't get the book, you didn't get the movie, you you walked away from this with the entirely opposite meaning. 
Or let me put, let me paint a picture for like okay this this is you watching the movie right this is you watching clockwork orange or or fight club for that matter and all the way over here is the point <laughs> beautiful use of audio space thank you <laughs> uh well i think that that gives us a nice spot to jump into our how gay were they ratings so um hannah the first time that we have someone on this podcast as a guest we lovingly haze them by making them go first in our how gay were they ratings so i'm gonna put you on the spot here and i'm going to ask you how gay was wendy carlos Um, if you were to ascribe an arbitrary rating well in an arbitrary rating system i feel like you know she was like definitely let's see i think um it is like five out of seven corners of her studio <laughs> seven entire quarters i know i'm just like Perfect imagining score. yeah one two i'm like going back to the blueprint in my mind I'm like oh man yeah because it's like there there are i think there's there's several corners because it's not a straight triangle I mean, you know, nothing in this is is straight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that and just what your what your kind of final thoughts well, are? Well, she is just very practical about it all and very straightforward without really flying off the rails. So I think a five out of seven perfect score is appropriate. There you go. I think for me, I will give Wendy Carlos eight kitten paws delicately crossing the sensitive keyboard of a Moog synthesizer in her spaceship. And I know that I said eight as in like there are there's at least two cats on this synthesizer. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um yeah, I mean I just like my favorite picture is probably her most recent picture that she has up on her her website on the header is her, you know, in front with with just like this Siamese cat kind of draped over her shoulder, which is just delightful. I think for the same reasons as you, right? Like I I wish for her and and for her own legacy that it had been an easier discovery and and one that was not as you know scandalized and something that she felt like that she needed to come out publicly in an article like she did do i wish that she had been able to go back and have her previous work be acknowledged as her current name and you know identity and truth as opposed to having the majority of her backlog being published under this name that is no longer associated with her and her life yes i hope that she she realizes and and appreciates her her role in all of this right yeah absolutely well hannah thank you so much for coming on this podcast with me after uh, so much time you know talking about we should do an episode together we should do an episode together and we will we i imagine we will do more so I would love for you to uh, let our listeners know what you're doing right now, where they can find you on the internets. So when I'm not nerding out over music from the 70s and 80s, I'm nerding out over um, releases from like the past week or so. Um, like I'm always checking out that that new Music Friday stuff, um, both on my personal Twitter, but also over at Queer Sounds Pod on Twitter, Instagram, you know, the works. So either that or I'm in bed failing at yet another Pokemon Nuzlocke challenge. Which Pokemon game is this Nuzlocke is Nuzlocke from? Uh, no no Nuzlocke you can you can play Nuzlocke with like every Pokemon game. It's just a set of arbitrary rules you apply while 
playing a regular Pokemon game. Oh, see, this this goes to show uh, how long it's been since I've played a new Pokemon game is I'm so entrenched in the original 151 that I'm like, what game is Nuzlocke from? What Pokemon is that? I don't recognize that. <laughs> this, I'm a fake gamer. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I don't. I don't even call myself a gamer. It just starts and ends with Pokemon. There you go. I mean, your your Discord name made me absolutely laugh out loud when you friended me on Discord. I won't say it, you know, so that people don't stalk you on Discord. But uh, it's a Pokemon pun, and it's beautiful, and I I love it, and I love you. If people uh, want to interact with Discord, they can subscribe to Queer Sounds on Patreon. That's there awesome. you go. Yes, yeah. Hannah has a wonderful uh, Queer Sounds Discord. As for myself, I'm Lee, and when I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks and trying desperately to make synth puns, uh, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and crying about Xena episodes on my couch. History is Gay podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay podcast, Twitter at History is Gay pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at historyisgaypodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho Salon minisodes, special sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show, and more. And as I've mentioned in some other episodes, we will be uh, rebooting and kind of reconfiguring some of our Patreon things, so stay tuned for that. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our Patreon community, along with the amazing Allison Shannon, Chase Copperberg, and Tina Noack. Thank you so much for joining our patron family. We thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this without you. I also wanted to uh, mention really quick one of the reasons why we haven't made our changes in Patreon yet is because life has gotten really busy and uh, I wanted to announce that unfortunately we have lost our wonderful virtual assistant, Becca, who has gone on to a really wonderful and amazing job. Um, So I'm so grateful for everything that she was able to do in this podcast space while we had her and I would love for everyone to just congratulate her on her new journey and i hope that we get to see her again in this space as usual you can also buy awesome merch at our history is gay store click on shop on our website and lastly remember to rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts it helps more people find the show and we can expand our awesome community hannah would you like to help me close out this show on this lovely morning slash evening uh depending on where you are in the time zone that we are communicating Absolutely bring it on all right that's it for history is gay until next time stay queer and stay curious 